0: This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. Governor Ron DeSantis kicked off the legislative session and delivered his first State of the State Address. This week we hear highlights from his speech and the Democratic response. Matters brought you live coverage of the governor's address, reaction from Senate Minority Leader Audrey Gibson, and analysis with veteran political reporter William March with the Tampa Bay Times. We'll hear some key moments on today's show. We start with Governor DeSantis.
1: I consider myself blessed to stand before you at this particular moment in our history as Florida's 46th governor. I'm also proud of the accomplishments of our state and its citizens And I'm optimistic that this legislative session provides us with a unique opportunity to advance needed reforms in a variety of different areas that will strengthen our state and benefit the people now and in the future. And having spent three terms in a different legislature, a prison that I call the U.S. House of Representatives, (laughs) it's quite a privilege to actually be able to work with a legislative body that has demonstrated the ability to get things done and to lead. Two years ago, the legislature here unanimously passed a resolution acknowledging and apologizing for gross injustices perpetrated in the middle of the last century against four African-American men known as the Groveland Four. The resolution requested that the governor review the cases and issue pardons for these men. Upon taking office, I took action. Joined by our cabinet members, I approved pardons for all four men a few days into my term. We here today are united in insisting that the constitutional protections central to a free society are honored for all of our citizens. <laughs> I observed during my inaugural address that, in the words of Alexander Hamilton, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. In less than 60 days, my administration has taken bold action to address issues that Floridians care about, reorienting our environmental policy around the goal of cleaning up our water, announcing far-reaching education reforms designed to make Florida number one in skills-based education by the year 2030, securing hundreds of millions of dollars for storm-ravaged parts of Northwest Florida, bringing accountability to entities ranging from the Broward Sheriff's Office to the South Florida Water Management District, and appointing three spectacular justices to our state Supreme Court. To the people of Northwest Florida, we pledge to stand with you as you work to rebuild your communities stronger than before, and we followed through on that pledge. I've already traveled to Washington, D.C., and secured a historic commitment from the Trump administration to provide assistance to the communities that Michael battered. My administration has worked to cut through red tape to expedite relief efforts. And thanks to the leadership of your former House colleague, Jared Moskowitz, we are making great progress. Executive energy and leadership are necessary to meet the challenges that are before us, but they're not sufficient. In a constitutional system with separated powers, we together, the political branches, must work together so that we can build off the foundation that has been laid and set the stage for the future success of our state. Well, how can we accomplish this task? I answer simply, be bold. Be bold in championing economic opportunity. Be bold in protecting Florida's environment. Be bold in improving education. Be bold in defending the safety of our communities. Be bold because while perfection is not attainable, if we aim high, we can achieve excellence. Florida is blessed with some of the nation's finest natural resources. We're the fishing and boating capital of the United States. Our beaches bring millions of tourists to our state each and every year. The state's unique natural environment is central to our economy our quality of life, and our identity as Floridians. We are repositioning our water policy to meet the needs of our citizens by, among other things, expediting key projects like the EAA Reservoir and raising the Tamiami Trail, establishing a blue-green algae task force to develop policies to fight algae blooms, fight red tide, and improve water quality, and appointing a chief science officer to better harness scientific data and research in service of Florida's most pressing environmental needs. I've also requested $2.5 billion over the next four years for water resources projects and Foreverglades Everglades restoration. This represents a $1 billion increase compared to the previous four years and will allow us to bring major projects to completion. Now, given the persistent water problems we've seen over the past several years, now is the time to be bold. We cannot leave for tomorrow that which we can do today. Because the people of Florida should have confidence that their interests are being reflected in policy implementation, I asked and received the resignations of all members of the South Florida Water Management District. We needed a fresh start and I'm pleased to report that I've appointed a number of good people to this board. So we have a bold vision, we have good folks in key positions, and with your support for these initiatives, we will restore and preserve the beauty of Florida for generations to come. It's often said that states serve as laboratories of democracy, and we are in the midst of a great experiment among states regarding taxation and government spending. The result has been a migration of wealth from states that tax heavily, spend profligately, and regulate excessively to states like Florida that tax lightly, spend conservatively, and regulate reasonably. In the face of these trends, some of the states that have hemorrhaged businesses and taxpayers have decided to double down by raising existing taxes and even imposing new taxes. As George Harrison once observed, if you get too cold, they tax the heat. If you take a walk, they tax your feet. But we are a mobile, highly connected to society, and as taxes become more onerous and as the business climate deteriorates in these states, people vote with their feet taxpayers and businesses leave tax base erodes and the fiscal situations of these states gets more ominous yielding massive budget shortfalls it is a vicious cycle we won't repeat those mistakes here in florida we will always remain a low tax state and we will never have an income tax here in the state of florida Now, I've proposed more than $330 million in tax relief for Florida families, including property tax relief. I think we have to keep this economic momentum going. Now, to those in states that may have a bad business climate and a bad political climate, quite frankly, my message is this. Come to Florida. We will maintain a healthy economic environment. We welcome your success. We won't chase jobs away through economic ignorance and demagoguery. We're also committed to modernizing our infrastructure, and I know President Galvano is focused on making that happen. Now, there there are areas where Florida can do better. I hope the legislature passes legislation to reform the issue of AOB, which has really degenerated into a racket. And it is clear that we need to reform some of our occupational licensing regime, which borders on the absurd and primarily serves to frustrate opportunities for Floridians. Did you know... You can become a sniper in the U.S. Marine Corps by completing training for 79 days, which is roughly 632 hours. Yet, in Florida, becoming a licensed interior designer requires 1,760 hours. Florida law requires 1,200 hours to become licensed as a barber. Now, our DBPR secretary and your former colleague in the House, Halsey Bashirs, has identified a number of these requirements that need to be streamlined, rolled back, or eliminated, and I think this project merits your support. Now, maintaining low taxes and a healthy economic climate are important, but to me, the most important factor regarding Florida's economic potential is human capital. If we support our university system, our state colleges and primary and secondary education, as well as the reforms needed to improve educational opportunities across the board, then we will be setting the stage for future economic success that will be the envy of the nations. As we sow, so shall we reap. Now I'm proud that Florida's university system is ranked number one in the nation, ahead of Texas, California, and New York. Now, many of you know firsthand, this wasn't always so. The climate topped the rankings, has been remarkable. And we're, pro- we're poised for growth in finance, technology, healthcare, aerospace, and more. Let's support the continued ascent of our universities so that these industries can grow by employing our own graduates in good, high-paying jobs in our low-tax, business-friendly environment. Just as we're supporting our traditional universities, we should acknowledge that attending a four-year brick and ivy institution is is one way to get advanced knowledge and skills necessary for achieving economic success, but it's not the only way, and for many, it's not even the best way. Skills-based education offers a focused and oftentimes more cost-effective means by which students can acquire the tools they need to be successful. Now, working with your former speaker and our current Commissioner of Education, Richard Corcoran, I've proposed a plan to take Florida from middle of the pack to number one in workforce education by 2030. Our workforce education initiatives include grants to place students in apprenticeships, money to train teachers in computer science, and funds for workforce programs within our state college system. These reforms will make a difference, and these reforms deserve your support. Now, Florida's made strides in primary and secondary education since I graduated from public school in Dunedin in 1997. Uh, But we have a lot more to do. Uh, For years, I've heard from parents and teachers about the problems with the system of standards, testing, and curriculum modeled after Common Core. Parents have been frustrated by not even being able to help their kids with basic math problems. And so I've acted. I've instructed Commissioner Corcoran to spend the rest of the year engaged in consultation with parents, teachers, school administrators, and employers so that we can replace Common Core with high-quality curriculum, streamlined testing, and a new emphasis on American civics. Now, we need to do more to recruit, retain, and reward great teachers in our schools. And to this end, I have proposed replacing the best and brightest program with a revised $423 million program that will reward more than 40,000 teachers with bonuses approaching $10,000 and we're doing away with the SAT requirement on that, and I think it'll end up being much more fair. I'm also requesting $10 million for a tuition and loan forgiveness program for as many as 1,700 teachers who commit to teaching in Florida schools for five years. Attracting and keeping great teachers in our classroom should be a high priority for this body, and it's a high priority for me. Education opportunities shouldn't be limited by parental income or zip code. One way Florida's expanded opportunity has been through the tax credit scholarship program for students from low-income families. More than 100,000 students, nearly 70% of whom are African-American or Hispanic, with an average family income of roughly $26,000 per year, are utilizing the scholarship. The results have been encouraging, the Urban Institute recently released a study that found tax credit scholarship students are 43% more likely to attend a four-year college and 20% more likely to obtain a bachelor's degree. But students who use the scholarship more than four years are up to 99% more likely to attend college and up to 45% more likely to earn a bachelor's degree. Now, more low-income families would like the opportunity to obtain a scholarship for their kids. There are currently 14,000 students who qualify for the scholarship but are stuck on the waiting list. We're a big diverse state and one size doesn't fit all when it comes to education. We also need to stand by our students with special needs and their families. and That means eliminating the wait list of 1900 students for the Gardner Scholarship. The Gardner Scholarship is our way of saying that everyone counts and that these are lives worth living. And speaking of everybody counting, I must say I wholeheartedly reject The callous disregard for human life displayed recently by the governors of virginia and new york we will not allow such things to happen here in florida we need to enact policies to make health insurance prescription drugs and medical care more affordable for floridians now as you're aware health care is being hotly debated at the national level, just let me say this, any proposal that seeks to eliminate the private health insurance policies of millions of Floridians is simply unacceptable. Government has no right to take away the policies that Floridians earn through their jobs or that they purchase on the individual market. i want floridians to be able to purchase prescription drugs from canada at lower prices there is an avenue under existing federal law to accomplish this the president and i have had discussions he is supportive of this effort and has asked me to plow ahead which will require navigating an institutionally hostile bureaucracy as we all know but i think it's worth the effort because this could save money for individuals could reduce costs for our businesses and it can relieve pressure on our state budget i'm open as well to any ideas that the legislature has to tackle this problem. But one thing is clear, Floridians need relief from the rising costs of prescription drugs. Bringing price transparency to healthcare can also help reduce costs, and I've instructed my secretary of ACA, Mary Mayhew, to expedite the price transparency database that you and the legislature have recently uh, mandated. Now, to make the tool effective, though, We need legislation to provide for shared savings policies so that if a patient does shop, they actually receive a personal financial benefit when they choose a more cost-effective option. And I'm also supportive of Speaker Oliva's call to foster innovation and competition in our healthcare system. We can't just continue doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Now, last year at this time, the state was still reeling from the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Now out of that tragedy grew the MSD Commission, which earlier this year outlined a series of recommendations to improve security at Florida schools. I support the recommendations, and I ask that you enact them into law. These reforms are a testament to the tenacity, courage, and character of the families of the Parkland victims. Now, I've gotten to know a number of the families, and one thing that' stu- stuck with me is something I've heard a number of them say, that this was the most preventable school shooting maybe in history. When I took office, many of the Parkland families felt that there had not been any accountability at the school district or at the sheriff's office for the string of failures that culminated in the massacre. So I acted by successfully petitioning for a statewide grand jury that will investigate school security failures in Broward County as well as in other districts. I also suspended Scott Israels, the sheriff of Broward, and replaced him with Gregory Tony. Now this suspension will come before the Senate soon, and the failures of the former sheriff are well documented. Now why any senator would want to thumb his nose at the Parkland families and eject Sheriff Tony, who's doing a great job and has made history as the first African-American sheriff in the history of Broward, is beyond me but I judge not, lest I be judged. I take public safety seriously. There's a big debate going on in national politics about immigration. We have a limited role in Florida. Uh, But one thing I think we can do and what I can declare is that Florida will not be a sanctuary state. We will not allow someone here illegally to commit criminal misconduct and simply be returned to our communities. And we won't tolerate sanctuary cities that actively frustrate law enforcement by shielding criminal aliens from accountability at the expense of public safety. (laughs) International events usually have a particular resonance uh, here in Florida. Earlier this year, I had uh, a meeting in the Oval Office alongside Senators Rubio and Scott, as well as Congressman Diaz-Billard about the dire situation in Venezuela. And to the president's credit, he heeded our advice and recognized Juan Guaido as the interim president and made clear that U.S. policy was that the dictator, Nicolas Maduro, has got to go. To the Venezuelan exile community here in Florida and to Venezuelan Americans here in Florida, we stand with you and with the people of Venezuela who are seeking freedom and a better future for the nation of Venezuela. We also know that the despair in Venezuela wouldn't be possible without the nefarious influence of the Cuban government and the Castro regime. Now, I applaud the president who just recently allowing the application of Title III of the Libertad Act, and I support additional efforts to hold the Castro regime accountable. I would like to see the Castro dictatorship go the way of Maduro and to someday see a free and democratic Cuba take its place. I offer my thanks to the legislature for defending the U.S.-Israel relationship by enacting anti-BDS legislation. This whole enterprise of targeting Israel for economic harm is such a fraud and merely a cover for anti-Semitism. So rest assured, in Florida, BDS is D-O-A. Now we'll be taking a delegation to Israel in May, and I look forward to furthering the relationship between Florida and Israel on a number of fronts. Let's fight the good fight, let's finish the race, let's keep the faith, so that when Floridians look back on the fruits of this session, they will see it as one of our state's finest hours. Thank you, and God bless you.
0: Now we'll hear the Democratic response from Senate Minority Leader Audrey Gibson. She applauded DeSantis for some of the issues he addressed in his speech, but said others gave her pause.
2: His priorities on the environment, to clean up Florida's water from all the toxic algae and red tide that killed untold numbers of dolphins and other marine life, sounds great. And his support for, quote, high-quality education and being prepared to do, quote, what we must so that each and every student receives such is on target. But there are ominous signs that are rising, signaling that his proposed solutions really aren't new at all. Worse, that many of them are sowing more divisiveness in the legislative process and across our state. The issue is that the water crisis in Florida didn't erupt overnight. It was a process fed by deregulating environmental protections and allowing pollution to flow unchecked over the last few years and will take long-range planning to fix it. This includes septic tank mitigation. Any efforts to finally clean up our water will have to take the full picture into account by committing the state resources necessary to help homeowners transition away from septic to sewer systems and better regulating discharges and management of industrial waste small grants to cities and counties here and there is still a problem in search of a solution now let's talk about what a high quality education does and does not look like first the florida constitution defines what our responsibility is when it comes to education Article 9, Section 1, in part, says, adequate provision shall be made by law for a high-quality system of free public schools that allows students to obtain a high-quality education. But that high-quality education the governor talks about leaves out the free public schools part. Just as Republican administrations have been leaving out public schools year after year, grossly unfunding our schools while calling a $0.47 increase historic. Our Constitution doesn't mandate using tax dollars to pay for private schools. It doesn't require us to subsidize for-profit charter management companies. It doesn't require us to help build private schools in areas where great public schools already exist. But that's exactly what the governor has laid out and is about to try to do. Using positive terminology like family empowerment and then moving thousands of our students out of their neighborhood school and into a voucher system while building privately run charter schools in the same economically depressed areas that have been deliberately left behind is a bait and switch scheme our children and families do not deserve where the accountability and transparency parents seek and expect is already built into the public school system. None of these factors are guaranteed in publicly funded private schools because none of it is required. If public schools aren't being accountable, we can demand it. If teachers aren't performing as they should or children with special needs or learning disabilities or have unaddressed needs, We can require change because the Constitution is on our side. That's why Democrats have stood up for teachers and public schools. And that's why we will continue to stand up and defend our children. Ironically, while he's reluctant to preserve and protect public schools, the governor is willing to put more guns in them and call it school safety. A teacher armed with a handgun is no match for an assault weapon. A teacher with a minimum number of hours of training cannot possibly hope to respond quickly or accurately without mistakes in the chaos of open gunfire. That's why Democrats oppose arming teachers, because adding more guns won't solve the problem. In January, Governor DeSantis said he wants to create better health care options that put consumers first address opioid addiction, and fund meaningful mental health care. These goals could largely be accomplished by a single act, expanding Medicaid in Florida. But the governor refuses to consider it, while nearly a million people languish with no place to go for their health needs except the emergency room. Our state is one of the 14 last holdouts fighting against the Affordable Care Act by refusing to expand health care to tens of thousands of Floridians eligible for coverage under the Act. That's why Democrats will continue to push for health care expansion. Standing by while thousands of Floridians are denied access to health care and ignored by this administration is not an option. Governor DeSantis likes to use the word bold, bold future, bold vision, bold agenda. But being bold means being unafraid to break the rules, to defy convention, and to buck any system that leaves any Floridian behind. How bold is it to pack the Supreme Court, the last place individuals seeking justice can turn to, with people who all think the same and rubber stamp each other's preconceived thoughts? How bold is it to whip up anti-immigrant sentiment over sanctuary cities that don't even exist in Florida. Florida is a diverse state blessed with people of all backgrounds, nationalities, and cultures. Being bold means a willingness to put forward policy ideas that embraces this diversity and governing accordingly.
0: That's it for today's show. You can find more coverage of the 2019 legislative session on our website, WUSFnews.org. And Florida Matters is now a podcast. It's another great way to listen wherever and whenever it's convenient for you. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Craig George and the producer is Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.